This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today, we're taking a dip into the history of the most Roman of daily rituals, bathing. This practice of personal care left its mark across a number of English heritage sites. These include the baths in the forts alongside Hadrian's Wall in northern England and the vast bathing complex in the Roman city of Roxeter in Shropshire. Joining us to discuss how and why the Romans bathed and to give us a tour of some of the bathhouses they built to do so are properties historian Andrew Roberts and collections curator for the West, Cameron Moffat. Hi. So, Andrew, let's start with you. How did the bathing culture first develop across the Roman Empire? And an additional question, why was bathing held in such high regard? Well, bathing in company, as opposed to just a private wash for hygiene reasons, is not strictly speaking a Roman invention. The Greeks got there first in terms of the Western Mediterranean, albeit their bathhouses are a little bit different in form to those of the Romans. Now, as far as Roman-style communal baths and sweating it out in large communal heated rooms, we can see this type of bathing experience emerging in Campania, so the area in and around Naples, places such as Pompeii, in the 3rd to the 2nd centuries BCE. And this is something of a, at the time, it's something of a cultural melting pot of Greek, Roman and Etruscan influences. It would have reached Rome shortly after, and bathhouses and bathing would have been established as a familiar site in the city by the 1st century BCE. Mm. And in the uh, what we call the imperial period, so when, when Rome comes under the control of an emperor in, in the 1st century AD, bathing would have been very popular, would have been taken off, and it would have remained popular for the rest of, of the Roman Empire. So really, it's this cultural constant. And the orator Cicero, in a letter to his wife, tells her that bathing is one of the necessities for life and for health. And health and also medical reasons are some of the sort of the practical uh, reasons why people bathe. But it's really much more than that. It's very central, central to being a Roman. The Emperor Justinian's Digest, which is a sort of a codification of the laws of, of Rome, defines a Roman's home as the place where one conducts business, the place where they visit the forum and the theatre, where they celebrate a religious festival, and importantly, where they go to visit the baths. And this really tells you how fundamental it was to Roman self-identity. So when they turn up in Britain in around AD 43, they bring this custom with them. Yes. So effectively, it was a pre-Roman custom then uh, and practice from previous civilizations, and the Romans kind of adopted it and then spread it and it arrived in Britain eventually. Yeah, I think the the specific origins are a little bit opaque to us, but it seems as though it it emerges from this cultural, cross-cultural milieu, which is is slightly in flux. And the the Romans do it, they sort of take it, they run with it, they refine it, and they develop technology in order to improve the process. So when it does arrive in uh, Roman-occupied Britain, Cameron, how central was bathing to life in our islands? Well, it was an essential facility for the troops and Roman officials who would certainly have expected to have access to baths while they were on work time. But it was also a key element in the campaign of persuasion, a useful demonstration of the benefits the Romans brought with them. How many English heritage sites do we have remains of a bathhouse? 
English Heritage manages 50 Roman sites, including villas like Lullingston, forts such as Hardknot, and towns like Roxeter, and half of these sites are known to have had baths. More may have done, but 25 of them have excavated evidence of baths. So is it possible that some of these undiscovered baths might be lying in wait somewhere under the ground as a result of a yet-to-take-place geophysical survey? Oh, I think that's entirely possible, yes. Some sites have experienced substantially more excavation than others. That is certainly the case. Okay. Andrew, when we think of Roman baths then, we might think of the famous Roman baths in the city of Bath. But of course, not everywhere had access to a natural thermal spring. So where did the heat and the hot water for the Roman baths in Britannia come from? Well, the fundamental part of the Roman bathing experience is not so much the hot water itself. Hot water is quite easy to provide. You just need a a fire, a furnace and, and a tank for heating it up. The fundamental technological development is actually the hypercost. It's from the ancient Greek hypercoston, which literally means a place heated from below. And this allows you to heat whole rooms in order to allow bathers to work up a sweat. What you need for that is a furnace that feeds heat into a basement underneath the rooms that you want to heat. The floor of these rooms is raised up upon pillars, creating a cavity that allows heat to circulate and to warm the space above. And then what you then need to do is you need to draw the heat up the building to keep it circulating. So the Romans would have fashioned in the wall cavity flues from special ceramics in order to take the heat up to the roof where it would then vent. And so with this in place, with the hypercourse in place, this means that you can essentially control the temperature of the rooms so that you can keep them at different temperatures in order to facilitate the bathing. That's a magnificent piece of engineering. Would the floor surface that the bathers would have been resting their feet on, would that have been wooden? No, it wouldn't. It would have been in different layers. You probably would have had stone resting on top of the of the pillars with, with essentially Roman cement then finished off. And it would have uh, essentially been waterproof by the time you finished with it. And it would have been very hot to the touch. So the Roman bathers would have had to have worn essentially sandals in order to protect their feet. Wow, it's fantastic, isn't it? To think of that today, it it seems like an amazing invention. So I can imagine how luxurious and pleasant it would have felt in the ancient world. So what did a Roman typical bathhouse look like and how did they work, Andrew? Well, bathhouses come in many different varieties in terms of their size, in terms of the layout, in terms of the style of, of facility and the, the opulence of the interior. Some are very opulent, some are you know quite basic in terms of their facilities. But the basic principles remain the same. The bathers are provided with a series of rooms that they move through in sequence, starting with an unheated room, a cold room that uh, was called the frigidarium, then going to a warm room, the tepidarium, before finally going to a hot room, the caldarium, where they might be able to get a hot bath. And then after that, they'd work their way back through via a tepidarium, back to the cold room, where they might be able to get a cold plunge bath at the end to finish the sequence. Smaller baths would have just had this basic facility of of three different rooms, maybe some changing space, possibly some toilets. But then more elaborate facilities might offer additional features such as exercise space, special rooms of dry or wet heat, pool maybe, or additional suites of rooms to allow additional capacity. 
And presumably you'd also need some sort of log storage area as well because you need a constant fire going in order to keep the place warm. Yeah, so the furnace would have been on the very edge of the building or furnaces, might be multiple furnaces in, in bigger bathhouses. And that probably would have been encapsulated in something of a sort of a lean-to structure. There would have been lots of fuel piled up in there. And that would have been the domain of the slaves who would have done the real hard work of having to keep the fires lit. Would they have been a 24-7 operation then? Or would they have been sort of prepared for certain days or... They would have been working in operation every single day, and I'd imagine it would have been the jobs of the slaves to get up very early in order to stoke the furnaces for them to warm up the baths. The poet Marshall claims that the best time to visit the baths is roughly two or three o'clock in the in the afternoon, by which time that the heat has has kind of got to its its fullest extent. So there's quite a lot of effort involved in trying to get the requisite heat into these structures. Moving back to Cameron, then, do any objects survive that tell us about how the Romans liked to bathe. Well, the details of Roman baths and bathing were essentially the same across the empire. So what you would find from the excavation of a bath in Lepsis Magna in North Africa, for example, will look look pretty much the same to what you would find from a bathhouse on Hadrian's Wall. There is a typical assemblage of objects that you can expect to find. As we heard, the aim was to work up a sweat, get the pores open, and then you would be oiled. Soap was not used. After sweating further in a hot room and then cooling down, the oil and sweat was scraped off with a strigil. The strigil is a curved scraper with a handle, and it is the key find for baths, as it is specific to bathing. Then you were sluiced down with water, and you dried off and applied more oil and also perfume. The oils and perfumes were carried there in stoppered glass flasks, often suspended from a cord threaded through a flask's handles. Many unguents and perfumes sold in glass bottles will have been imports from the continent to start, but these attractive containers would certainly have been reused. And we can see that grooming activities were usually done at the baths because finds like nail cleaning sets are very common from bath sites. There are also the accessories that we know existed from written accounts of the period, but for which evidence doesn't survive as they were made of organic materials. Mm. Linen towels, you had to have a towel, you either brought it along or you hired it at the baths. And wooden sandals, as Andrew was describing, patterns which were to protect the feet from the very hot tiled floor in the rooms above the hypercost. Nude mixed bathing probably wasn't the norm in Britain and married women would often have worn a shift in the baths. A shift? How does a that light look? dress. Oh, okay. Well, just 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 a basic dress made out of linen or something, something very simple. Okay, so not something that covers the sort of top half and then the midriff is open, and then the bottom half. It wouldn't be anything like that. No, 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 because the married women are dressing for modesty in the of baths. Course. I think what you're thinking of is there is a very famous mosaic showing a couple of young women exercising in the baths, in the palaestra, right. and they are wearing what really looks like modern bikinis, uh, and, and they've got dumbbells, and they're doing an exercise sequence in the rooms adjacent to the baths. Okay. There are other spaces and buildings of the bath complex, like the exercise hall, and these were the focus of a wide range of activities and services, much of it in the health and beauty line. Hmm. Going back to the oil and the perfumes, what was the oil made from? Is it olive oil? or? Um... Yes, you could have something that had come as an import and it would probably be olive oil, though there are other exotic oils that could come from the continent, sandalwood, things like this. 
once you were making it yourself, you'd emptied out that initial content. There were oils that were pressed in Britain. I think the essential thing was maybe to have a nice scent that you mm. would add to it. I see, yes, because I'm, otherwise I'm getting sort of an idea of these Romans basting themselves almost <laughs> to, to cook in the, <laughs> in, in the baths. But yes, you're, you're talking about sort of more essential oils, sort of the lavenders and, and these types of things. Would that be right? Well, there are two aspects to it. The oil is to loosen the grime on your skin and just to get everything wet and fluid in preparation for the stridgling process where mm. it is all scraped off. The addition of nice scents, well, that's optional, but it's part of the whole experience. Right. Of the items that were found during archaeological digs, do we have sort of combs and plucking devices? You mentioned the nail sets. Uh, was there anything else? Oh, loads of stuff like that. Because all the buildings surrounding the Abaths complex were the focus of a wide range of activities and services, much of it in the health and beauty line. So you would get palettes and pestles for grinding up materials for makeup, like charcoal for eyeliner or brow shading. A wealthy woman would own equipment for preparing and applying cosmetics, but a woman of more modest means might not. And all the mirrors of the period were handheld ones, so it was virtually impossible to look at your own reflection and apply makeup at the same time. What you did was you let the expert do your face and then check the results with a hand mirror. You mentioned hairpins. These occur in very large numbers, both from casual losses while using the baths or from the kit employed by hairdressers available when you had finished your bathing session and your hair needed tension, having gone frizzy from the steamy atmosphere in the baths. Mm. As those who could afford it spent the afternoon at the baths before progressing to the evening meal, the services of beauticians and hairdressers as the final stage of one's bathing experience were very much in demand. I'm getting a sense now of how this is so central to Roman life across the empire and here in Britannia. It was almost like a leisure centre meets a beautician meets, you know, public baths. It's it was it was everything in one. It was pure luxury and indulgence and self grooming and self care. <laughs> yes, the height of civilization, I suppose. Okay, well, let's look at three different English heritage bathhouses. Let's start with the baths at uh, Chester's Roman fort on Hadrian's Wall in the north of England, which Andrew and I have discussed before. Who lived at that fort and who were the baths created for? I know the answer, but... Uh... Well, as you, as you uh, said, Charles, this is an old favourite of mine because this is such a well-preserved bathhouse where you can really see the sequence of rooms. You can really imagine the bathers that stood here. And these bathers would have predominantly been part of the garrison of around 500 soldiers who operated the fort, who were part of the wider garrison that operated Hadrian's Wall. So perhaps they came to the bathhouse after patrolling along the wall. And we know that from the late 2nd century AD, that the unit that was stationed here were the 2nd Asturian Cavalry Unit, so originally a unit raised in northern Spain, mm. albeit probably by this point they're starting to recruit from the locality as well. Now, the soldiers were uh, auxiliaries, and I think this is what makes Chester's Bath particularly interesting, because auxiliaries, as opposed to legionaries, who are probably the soldiers that you're thinking of when you're thinking of Roman soldiers, 
these are not auxiliaries however are non-citizens they they sort of get into a, a deal with with the roman empire whereby they will serve in the army for 25 years doing things such as border patrols uh, border security that kind of thing in return for a gift of citizenship so what's going on is that they're serving the empire but at the same time they're also being inculcated with the Roman cultural practices. So perhaps in the fort, in the headquarters building of the fort, they're taking part in Roman religious rituals. In the bathhouse, they're taking part in this real signature cultural practice of communal bathing. And were the baths um, as nice sounding as the ones that we've already described uh, in general for the soldiers or would they have been a bit less salubrious? I think they're perfectly decent facilities. They're not huge, okay? They're probably about the size of of a couple of tennis courts. You probably get a few dozen people in them at one time. Maybe over the course of the day, you could get a couple of hundred people through the baths reasonably comfortably. Mm. Um, And at least initially when they're built, they're fairly basic. You just have the basic suite of a cold room, a warm room, a hot room, maybe a hot bath as well. And then later in the third century, there were some additions that shows that it's kind of expanding and then becoming a little bit more more of a sociable space. So the first thing that they get is some extra capacity of a very hot, dry suite, a little bit like a modern day sauna gives you a bit of choice. You can you can go one of two ways when you come into the bath. You can have a slightly different kind of bathing experience as a result. And more intriguingly, there's also an addition of a large hall at the entrance. And this is not there for actual bathing related activities this is there for more social related activities a place to exercise it's a place to to chat to 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 catch up with with maybe some of your comrades or or perhaps people uh, living uh, in and around the fort and i think what this potentially shows is that while initially these auxiliaries who are using the bathhouse purely maybe on a functional basis to get clean after a hard day's soldiering it suggests that there by the third century that the soldiers living here were buying into the Roman bathing experience as a whole, i.e. This, this kind of sociable experience. Yes, and that raises the question, as you sort of intimated, that the local non-military community, which would have sprung up around the fort to the south, would they have also been able to have access to these baths? It would seem so. It's very difficult to say who specifically the people were who were in particular spaces just from the archaeological evidence that we have. But because the the position of the bath, which is outside of the walls of the fort, situated in what would have been quite a substantial settlement that would have grown up around the, the fort, you'd imagine that the local population would have had access in some form. And given that we're talking about a community that probably would have been drawn from the people that would have been living here before the Romans came and occupied Britain, this is quite an important point of contact with Roman culture. And there are similar structures to the Chester's bathhouse right across the forts of of Hadrian's Wall. Cameron, what objects have been discovered at Chester's specifically that provide clues to the Roman bathing habits? The collection from Chester's is very rich, and it contains many statues, inscriptions, altars, and commemorative stones. It also contains the usual baths-related equipment, but a few special things as well. One is a small statue found next to the baths inside the fort, depicting a river god, 
who presumably is the spirit of the North Tyne River, which is just outside the main baths and the source of, of the water supply to the baths. Hmm. He lounges back, bare-chested and bearded, suggestive of the sensuous experience of bathing. <laughs> the other notable object, yes, he's very, gosh, he's very dishy, actually. Um, <laughs> the other notable object from Chester's is a handle from a glass flask for bath oil made in the shape of a dolphin. Dolphins had a number of symbolic meanings in the Roman period, but from a military site like Chester's, I think that the reference here is to Bacchus, the god of wine, always a popular god among soldiers. Yes, and would actually there have been wine drinking within the baths or would drinks have not been permitted do we have any idea oh they were eating they were drinking when we get to roxeter you'll hear that there's quite a lot of evidence for takeaway food and drink being carted over to people who were uh having a nice time in the baths and just wanted a little bit more wanted a snack and a drink yeah, well, I suppose it's the uh, the ancient vending machine, isn't it, really, for when you go to the swimming <laughs> baths and, and come out of those and fancy a, a snack of some kind. Another English heritage site then was, um, it's called Wall, a Wall Roman site in Staffordshire. Um, what do we know about life here? Today, the Roman site of Wall is a small village somewhat overshadowed by its situation right next to two major thoroughfares, a dual carriageway section of the A5 and the M6 toll which are the modern manifestations of Watling Street. Watling Street running from Richborough to Chester was the first major road established by the Roman army in Britain, constructed to provide access from the seaports in the southeast up into the unconquered northwest and rebellious North Wales. Wall started as a sequence of forts on a hilltop and then developed into a key staging post at the intersection of Watling Street and Ricknield Street, a major north-south route. A mansio or guest house was built at Wall in about AD 80 and a bath suite about 20 years later. And this civic core then became the focus of a small town with substantial areas of industrial activity on its fringe. Am I right in saying it was a sort of a a staging post for, for troop movement and you'd have fairly senior Roman officials on the military side arriving and, and wanting to have a bath and, and that kind of thing? Absolutely. This was a key part of the expansion throughout Britain. And it was very successful. And the Baths and Mancio complex at Wall was expanded a a number of times, went through multiple phases of expansion, and became quite a large establishment with painted schemes in the baths depicting gods and goddesses from classical mythology. And when eventually the Mancio itself fell into disuse in about AD 250, the baths were kept going for another 50 years because people valued them so much. The bath suite at Wall is one of the best preserved examples in Britain and it's well worth going and having a look. And is it just sort of um, actual walls left over? Do we have any mosaics or anything like that? It has a small museum attached and in the museum you can see some of the examples of the very fancy wall painting that was in the baths and in the Mancio. So in some respects, being on that main thoroughfare, I suppose you could almost describe it as a almost like a motorway service station come baths. Uh, would, would that sort of be an, a, I think, a fair assessment? I think that's a, a pretty good assessment. So these mansiones, they're essentially official hotels and they're an intrinsic part of the way in which Roman Britain is governed because they would have been positioned roughly about a day's ride apart on these major road networks. So roughly about 
20 to 35 miles apart. It's essentially your equivalent of a service station with a travel lodge attached to it. The, the day's ride distance between that, you would have had intermediate, much smaller intermediate stations where you could get the Roman equivalent of a pit stop, essentially a new, a new horse in order to continue your journey. And they would have had to have catered for varying classes of different kind of official travelers. So from your kind of your couriers, soldiers going from posting to posting to financial and administrative officials who would have traveled across the country overseeing the running of the province and might well have been very wealthy and powerful people. Maybe even the governor might have turned up once in a while at, at some of these places. And it really highlights how important the baths are because well, we would expect, you know, traveling on the M6 today to get the coffee, hot food, maybe a, a bed for the night. The Romans would have expected to have a well-appointed bathhouse to relax and be a bit sociable. Yeah, I was going to say, could they do business with all these different people dropping in? I guess it potentially would be an opportunity for those living in, in Wall to meet some of the more important people in the province. And potentially if there was there were important people living nearby, they would probably use this as an opportunity to meet these officials and to, and to socialise with them. And yes, potentially to do business. Oh, that's really interesting. Fascinating. An official hotel that's like a service station. Even to us, it still sounds like quite a luxurious venue to arrive at after a long day on a horse, hopping up and down on the saddle and, and sweating a bit. So I can imagine how it would have been a really welcome sight to see if there was any signage to arrive. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And in a way, you didn't need signage because a bathhouse would be visible for miles around a proper big bathhouse they would have been rendered and painted white they would have stood very high uh, compared to other buildings and the heat generated would have made them shimmer um, they were real markers in the landscape what about the objects that have been found during excavations at wall cameron is there anything different from what we've seen at chester's well again you get the usual sort of bathing kit but the standout aspect of the collection from Wall is the huge amounts of Roman window glass, which is actually likely to have been made at Wall. Most Roman buildings didn't have glazed windows, but you really needed them for baths because you needed to retain the steam inside the building. There was no point in getting your slaves to, uh, to stoke the fire and then letting all the steam and heat escape straight out the windows. So it, it really is quite notable, the amount of window glass from the wall. Okay, well, let's move on to a third example and a notable one indeed. This is Roxeter Roman City in Shropshire. Now, if anyone's seen pictures or visited the site, they will know how big the standing walls are that are still at Roxeter Roman City. I mean, enormous. But how, how wide and, and how big was the actual city in its heyday? Well, it is the fourth largest city in Roman Britain, and people say that it has a similar area to Pompeii. So that is a, a useful way of uh, getting an idea of how large it is. It was the next major stopping point on Watling Street west of Wall, as Andrew was saying, a day's ride by horseback. And it was the regional Kivitas capital for a very extensive territory, Shropshire and Cheshire. It really is a very substantial place. We've mentioned the walls being very, very tall and quite solid, robust, you know, sort of walls. What else exists that we can see at Roxeter today? Well, the walls that you are describing are walls that were part of the bathing complex. 
And that complex of the bath suite, the bath suite extended even bigger, the adjacent palaestra or exercise hall, a marketplace, various other things. This entire complex occupied a whole city block. And there were several floors along the walls vertically? Do we know? Well, what you can see when you go there is you see where the floor above the hypercost would have been. So when you get to the site, there is what seems to be this enormous basement. And that is the area below the floor of the baths where the hypercost has been built. And there are upstanding pillars and it creates this large area for the hot air to flow through. The baths themselves... I guess they were bigger than Wall and then perhaps even bigger than Chester's combined. Much bigger. So the baths complex, so everything that Cameron has has described, occupies one insula. An insula is a Roman city block. So you're looking at an area that's roughly the size of a large football pitch. Not all of that is bathing space, but it's on a completely different scale to the baths at Wall and the baths at Chester's. That's vast. That puts our modern spas, or, you know, hotel spas, to absolute shame, doesn't it? I mean, you can pack in a lot of bathers into a facility yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, it's like a modern-day leisure centre, or on the, on the scale of a modern-day leisure centre. Remarkable. I'm astonished listening to this, because do you ever sort of get sort of surprised about how sophisticated and enormous these sorts of bathing places were? It does give you a fantastic insight into the size of Roxeter at its height, because when you go there now, there are these amazing upstanding ruins which sit in this enormous area of agricultural land. And it is very hard to get your head around the fact that it would all have been built on. Mm. There would have been buildings everywhere. But to think about the capacity of the baths and the hundreds of people that it could have accommodated and did accommodate in any given day, it is a very good way of tapping into the former size of that city. Yes, absolutely. And and the attraction of the baths to the local people. So clearly these ones were public, were they, Andrew? Yeah. And the first thing to note about what that really means is their location. They would have been at the very centre of the city you would have turned off Watling Street and gone straight into the bars. They're across the road from the Forum, which is the other great public building in the city centre. So they're front and centre. When you come to Roxeter, you're going to see the bathhouse. And that tells you a lot about their importance to the community. And they would have been paid for by the wealthy people of the town as this sort of grand facility not just to provide people with a functional space, but as a statement of patronage of the wealthy of the city, and also to really mark out Roxeter's wealth and status as one of the largest cities in, in Roman Britain. And today, you can really give us get a sense of how impressive, how mon- almost monumental those spaces would have been. The wall, really, that stands to a, to a height of seven metres today, what we call the old work, has the outline of the great vaults that would have uh, had to span the large rooms in order to accommodate such a large proportion of, of the population. 
It also would have held up the basilica, the, the large exercise hall that would have been essentially your welcome into the bathing complex. And this would have been on, on, a, on the scale of, of a sort of the nave of a cathedral with aisles down either side, a roof that would have towered above you at about 18 meters high. And this would have you know, allowed hundreds, possibly even thousands of people to be gathered in, in the place at one time and do far more than simply just clean themselves. It's a real social space with all sorts of different activities going on. Andrew, how did people use rocks to Roman baths in their daily lives? Do we have any written evidence of this? Well, we have plenty of written evidence that doesn't necessarily pertain to rocks at all to Roman Britain, but we have plenty of written evidence that talks about the general bathing experience that comes from Roman writers, Roman poets, Roman uh, historians, etc. We kind of can get a, a sort of the gist of what the bathing experience would have been like. So for the elite, the Roman working day is very much done and dusted in the morning. By noon, you've probably conducted your business at the forum, uh, you've met clients, maybe your patron, and then you're going to go to the baths essentially after lunch when the water is at its, at its hottest. Other people living in the town, you probably go to the baths as and when you can, but you're probably going to try and get there as much as you can, as often as you can. So the Romans really believed this an intrinsic part of their daily ritual. It's very important for your personal hygiene, sometimes as a, as a therapeutic treatment for certain medical conditions. And for the wealthy, who probably would have had their own personal baths in their houses, a trip to the public baths is an opportunity perhaps to be seen, to make your presence felt, to meet people, maybe to set up plans for dinner later. For those further down the social scale, without their own facilities, it's a real opportunity to escape perhaps more cramped living conditions and the daily grind in order to sort of relax in style. And then finally, what we mustn't forget is that underpinning this experience are the slaves who would be there, probably in some cases hidden from sight, doing the hard graft, stoking the furnaces, maybe tending to the needs of their clients. And for them, the bathhouse is their daily grind. They absolutely have to be there. So as a whole, this is a building that sees all the different sections of Roman society represented. And it's very important to the running of a Roman society into the town of, of Roxeter. It's a real social centre. It's the kind of the slightly sweaty social glue which binds everybody together because everyone can participate, albeit not equally. They're all sharing this common cultural practice. And perhaps as a result, we might speculate that this engendered a sense of being together, being part of a community. That equally thing I was just about to ask you about, is there any sense that everyone shared the same space or was it sort of almost like first class, second class, third class bathing? There's sometimes a sense when people think about all different people within Roman society all coming to this one place, all kind of being in, in a state of undress, that it's in some ways a great equaliser. And, and the term I would use is shared experience, not an equal experience, because there's a big difference in terms of when you might be able to bathe. The rich can basically bathe at their leisure. The poor mm -hmm. can't. They have to work around, well, work, for example. Mm -hmm. Slaves might have been able to use the baths, not, not the, the slaves, the same slaves that necessarily serving the baths, but slaves of the household might be able to use the bath, but they're probably fitting it around their other tasks. And it would be quite apparent in the bathhouse, even if people were naked, who was important, who wasn't because a rich man or woman might turn up with the retinue. They would be being waited upon. You'd have attendants, you'd have bodyguards, you'd have people waiting to see them. 
whereas individuals lower down the social scale might just sort of be stuck in the corner or sneak sneak in in the corner and obtrusively they would have less elaborate bathing uh, equipment and, and possessions and wouldn't have a retinue with them. Regarding those possessions, Cameron, can you tell us anything specific that has been found relating to Roxeter Roman City baths? The baths themselves attracted a lot of tension in the 19th century because of this upstanding wall, the old work, which is so very obvious. And um, various people investigated the deposits at the foot of the wall. The archaeology of the baths relating to the period in which it was in use was long gone by the later 20th century when extensive research excavations were undertaken in the Baths Insula. Some of the most useful information comes from the surviving deposits in the bottom of some deep rubbish pits in the McCallum, which were full of evidence of takeaway food and drink, probably being taken over to the users of the baths. Hmm. And from the excavation of the adjacent exercise hall, there were finds indicating the wide range of services that could be obtained at the baths. Styly for writing on wax tablets provides evidence of professional letter writers and probably other professionals like accountants and notaries. And there are over a hundred of these from the Baths complex. We see a lot of the the objects that were most vulnerable to loss. We have hundreds of beads from broken necklaces, hairpins and equipment from makeup preparation, again, are frequent finds, and as are nail cleaners and objects related to the preparation of medicines. But more numerous than these are tweezers used mainly for hair removal. Both women and men would be using the services of the on-site depilators. Roman society's expectation of women was that they would remove the hair from their underarms and legs as part of their efforts to achieve an idealized form of feminine beauty. Ovid wrote that women needed to make very sure that their underarms weren't all hairy like a goat's. And this was usually done with tweezers. And there are 50 pairs of these in the English Heritage Collections for Roxeter. But men needed depilation services as well, as many of them intended the baths to partake in wrestling. And the required look for that was definitely hairless. Seneca described a hair plucker at the baths outside his house shouting to advertise his services and only stopping his noise when he's working on a client and making them shout with pain. (laughs) That's amazing. So with this giant bathing complex, does Roxeter need to have any other private baths? Well, as Andrew was saying, it's it's a social thing. And, and those who could afford it uh, might well add a private baths to their villa. So at Roxeter, there is a replica of a villa, which was built in 2010 as the subject of a rather amusing reality television program. And its details are based on a villa nearby, excavated in the early 20th century, which did have a secondary bath suite. Mm. Uh, And there, despite being very close to the town's baths, the owners of a villa would want their own private baths in part to bathe as a family, but also as a luxurious space in which they would socialise with their guests. So lastly then, how important were the Romans and their bathing culture to life in Britannia? One of the things that really strikes me about about bathing in Roman Britain is that when we think about the fact that the Romans were here for you know almost 350 over 350 years I should say there's a lot of change in terms of the people that were here in terms of a lot of the objects that they used in terms of the buildings that they built but bathing remains something of a of a constant the bathhouse at Roxeter, Chester's are built in, in the in the uh, early to mid second century AD, but they're still building new bathhouses, for example, in Lunningston in the third century, still in operation in the fourth century. And at somewhere like Richborough Roman Fort uh, in Kent, there's still a very small bathhouse being used right up until the very end of, of Roman Britain in the early fifth century. 
And I think that the, the material legacy, both the, the buildings themselves and some of the objects that Cameron's been talking about, reveal so much about the interests and, and the lives of Romans as people. On a personal note, uh, my wife gets very tired of me playing spot the bathhouse whenever I go to <laughs> a, a Roman archaeological site. But I would uh, very much encourage uh, listeners to do the same, not so much because they tell you about how the Romans got clean, but they tell you about how they lived, how they socialized, how they enjoyed themselves. And as such, they're really an encapsulation of, of life in Roman Britain. What's your take, Cameron? I think the legacy of Roman baths and bathing as an experience that is beneficial for the health as well as being a social event is strong in the 21st century, with the options ranging from the local authority swimming baths to high-end spas offering a range of personalized treatments on top of the steaming and bathing offer. And I can't see people ever tiring of the experience of going to the baths. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to explore Charles Darwin's living laboratory at Down House in Kent and a new project to bring this to life for visitors. We really wanted to kind of get across the fact that this domestic garden in a kind of leafy part of Kent completely changed our understanding of the world and we wanted to bring that to our visitors. Thanks for listening. See you next time.